Episode 123 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Richard Dennis. Right here, team, welcome along to episode 123 of the Bevan James Isle Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime love of fitness so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. I'm really excited about today's show. Um, it's an interview with a man called Richard Dennis, and I came into his work, it must have been about 10 years ago. And it's funny, it's a funny story how I came into his work. Sometimes in life, books just turn up to you, and uh, or or you find a book at a funny moment. And one one example of this that I remember when I was younger was, and this is a book that everybody knows, but it was the first time I read it. And I went to a party one night and it was kind of in the middle of nowhere. And I, for some reason, and I, this is when I was a drinker, I woke up in the morning and I'm in this bedroom just by myself, but it was a kid's bedroom and Charlie in the Chocolate Factory was next to the bed. And so in the morning, because I woke up early, I read all of Charlie in the Cho- Cho- Chocolate Factory. And I'll never forget that reading that book because it's a cool book anyway, but also just that kind of strange moment to read a book. But Effluenza is the name of his book that I read about 10 years ago, and I was staying at my friend Chris's house, and Chris is a prolific reader, and he's normally, he loves novels, he's not normally into books that aren't novels, so um, I was was fascinated to see he had a book that wasn't a novel, and so I thought, oh, I'll see what the book's about, and I picked it up, and I, I found it a very, very fascinating read. I'm not going to go too much into the book right now because obviously that's what Richard and I will talk about in the interview, but I've got to say it it was one of those books that had quite a profound effect on me and and particularly in the way I saw the world moving forward. And um, it's a book that I would often recommend to other people that they read. It's actually probably when I think about it, um, people know I like to read or at least consume books and it's a question you get a lot, is what books do you recommend? And Effluenza was a book that, in the last 10 years, I've mentioned a lot to people in conversation, but also recommended that a lot of people read. I, th- I think it's a really powerful book, and particularly in the modern times that we live in. And then recently, I was listening to my local radio station, and I heard an interview with Richard again, and he's just recently brought out a book called Curing, Curing Effluenza. And so I kind of just thought, I need to get in contact with this guy and talk about... Um, his work. Now, Richard is an economist, so this is going to be a little bit different of a show than maybe what we've done in the past. But to me, the the philosophy he's trying to promote in the world is very much about being a healthy person. And so it was kind of while, you know, this show is called The Bevan James Isles Show, The Fitness Behaviour Show, it, generally I'm trying to promote a healthy mind and body. And a lot of that comes in the way we, our philosophy of how to live life. And so I think there's going to be a lot of value in this interview with Richard, and hopefully you guys will get a lot from it, because I know in reading his work, I've definitely got a lot from the way I see the world and the way I perceive what's important in the world. And so I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. I'm going to put that on in a few minutes before the, from now. But before I get into the interview with Richard, there's a couple of things I do want to talk about. And one is um, something that I did recently. So recently... I went and got a healthy man check. Now, what's a healthy man check? Well, I've just turned 40, about six months ago I turned 40, and 
it's a part of being a healthy person. I think that there's a level of next level of checking up that you need to get done. And so being 40, I thought to myself, well, I probably want to go see a doctor just to go get a higher level of understanding around where my health is. Now, if you were to ask me or, or most of the people in my world, is Bevan healthy? The answer is probably going to be, yeah, he's a really healthy person. He exercises a lot. He eats pretty healthy. He's pretty good with his rest strategies. You know, generally speaking, I've got a good mindset. Generally speaking, I'm a very healthy person. But there's still aspects of this that you don't know. And so I just thought to myself, I'm going to do it. And so I went and got a healthy check. Uh, you had two appointments. One, you went to a nurse. They took your bloods, your urine, urine samples, ask questions, weight, and all these types of things, blood pressure and so on. And then uh, a few days later, once all the results came from the bloods and the urine and that, you went and saw the doctor and you just talked for like half an hour around where your health is at. And the, the testing pretty much proved what I thought would be the case. I'm a very healthy person and that's kind of a cool thing to hear. But then I was having a talk to one of my clients this morning actually. I was having a session with a client this morning who works in the medical industry and she was just talking about how, she was asking me, why did you do this? And I said, oh, well, you know, I just kind of see that being a healthy person means that you would have a check every so often. And particularly once you get to a certain age. And she said, well, the real problem we find in the, in, in the medical field is that men don't do this type of thing. That a lot of men will only see a doctor when there's a problem and often too late when there's a problem and she said how do we how do you feel we can get more men to do the thing that you did you know just to get a checkup and I'm not quite sure what the answer is but I, I did say well one thing I can definitely do is promote this to my world and obviously if you're listening to this podcast I consider you in my world and so probably why am I talking about this here was you, if you're listening to this podcast, I imagine you're someone who's trying to be healthy in some way, shape or form. You know, you're probably trying to get an exercise. You're probably a little bit aware of what you're eating. You know, you're maybe using some of the strategies that you, I talk about in this show, you know, that, that are making you, trying to make you a healthier version of yourself. And to me, a part of that is to invest in a checkup. Now, it cost me $200 to go see the doctor. It's not a small amount of money, but it's it's an investment in my understanding of my health. And if you're somebody who thinks, oh, she'll be right, or what's the point, I think I'm pretty healthy, or if you're unhealthy and you're living in denial, to me, this is an area that you really need to think about addressing. Like if we think we want a healthy life and a long-term healthy life, a part of that is doing the work around going to see a doctor. And so I suppose the reason I'm talking about this today is I'm just trying to encourage you, both female and male. And, uh, I think females are a bit more used to it because they'll have things like their smears and stuff like that. So there's kind of a system around you know, some of the cancer checks that your people will do, females in particular. But just both females and males, to get into a good routine around going getting a checkup from your doctor. And at the doctor, I just said to her, how often should I come back and see you? And she said, well, you know, seems you're pretty healthy kind of every two years. So I've put in my diary in two years from now, I'll just go back to the doctor and get another healthy man check. So today, I just wanted to share that with you because I think it's a really important part of you being healthy. And the responsibility to your health is more than just the actions you take daily, it's these things like a checkup. So don't just think about it. I really would encourage you to, to go get a checkup 
and uh, yeah, you know, get it done because I think it's a good investment in your health. And and if there is a bigger thing that needs to be worked on, well, wouldn't you want to catch it earlier? And that's something we want to think about as well. So before we get into the main interview with Richard today, I just want to talk about the patrons. These are some of the people who give their hard-earned cash to support the show and what I'm doing. And if you are a patron, you know who you are. I really appreciate the support you give to the show. It helps me do what I'm doing. So I'm just going to name a few of the patrons. When you become a patron, you get a nickname. And it's a nickname that I'll give out on the show. And uh, if you want to become a patron, just go to bevanjamesisles.com and you'll see on the front page, it's just a link to Patreon on. And it's just a way, it's all, it's all pretty simple when you go from there. So Paula Green, the powerful Punisher, she just did the Hawaii Marathon. I know that for a fact. Go Paula, she's over having a bit of a holiday in Hawaii. We've got Marion Clatt, the Momentum. We've got George Wild Bull Baker. We've got Mary, I've Got the Power. And Ginger Dave, the Governor. And then Fiona, the Stark Sanders. These are patrons of the show. If you want to become a patron, once again, go to bevanjamesos.com and you can support me and support kind of doing what I do in this world. Anyway, I'm going to put the interview up with Richard Dennis now. His book is Affluenza and Curing Affluenza. Check it out. And uh, here is the interview right now. Okay, team. Well, I'm very excited to have on the show Richard Dennis today. He's the Chief Economist at the Australian Institute. What is the Australian Institute, Richard? <laughs> uh, the Australian Institute's a think tank, uh, and a think tank is a, an organisation that does research designed to change people's minds. So uh, I'm an escapee from academia. I, I used to work at a university, and I think universities do a lot of great research, but Academics often find it hard to engage with the public, to engage with politicians, to engage with businesses. So uh, a think tank is a research organisation that sees its job as changing people's minds about things. So the Australia Institute uh, has a very broad brief. We, we focus on sort of big picture social and economic issues. And, and yeah, I've got, I've got the best job in the world, chief economist. I, I, I'm an economist by training and I, I've got a very broad brief and a very flexible job. I'm very lucky. So is, it, is it government funded or is it privately funded? How does something like that work? Yeah, good question. No, it's entirely philanthropically funded. Uh, we get no money from government. We've, we've got a grandiose name, the Australia Institute. Uh, we, we gave that name to ourselves and, and we want to make Australia a better place. But we, we do that by talking to the community and talking to the media about the problems the country faces and the solutions that it could choose from. And uh, yeah, all, all of our money comes from small donors, big donors, NGOs, uh, companies even sometimes give us uh, give us work to support bits of our research. We, we disclose that. But yeah, the vast majority of our money comes from philanthropy. And you say there's a brief, like what kind of like, what kind of brief is there behind this institute? Is it like a zero admission statement? I know it's quite broad, but what's the kind of purpose of it? Yeah, good question. Look, I used to lead the Australia Institute. I stepped down and now I'm its chief economist, which is a much better job. <laughs> um, but look, the, 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 the mission is set by the board and, and, and by the senior staff. Uh, the, the mission historically was to make Australia a more just, peaceful and sustainable uh, country. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, these days, look, we, we spend a lot of time talking about unemployment and inequality. We spend a lot of ta- time talking about climate change and renewable energy. 
we spend a lot of time talking about corruption uh, and, and why Australia needs tougher anti-corruption laws and, and watchdogs. So it's very broad. The brief, the, the name, the Australia Institute suggests how, how broad our thinking is, but uh, on a day-to-day and year-to-year level, they're decisions made by the people who lead it. Uh, and while it was fun to make all those decisions, I tell you what, it's a lot less, it's a lot more relaxing to not have to anymore. Yeah, I can imagine. Hey, so even if we take a little bit of a step back, um, why, why economics? Why was that your kind of your your choice when it came to your education? <laughs> um, yeah, good question. Uh, I had no real interest in economics when I was at school, and at one point I was going to be an accountant. I I kind of thought. I don't know why. Just. I don't know, someone else was doing accounting, I think. Uh, but I failed first year accounting and I got a distinction in economics. Oh, so well. I thought, oh, well, there's a, well, there's a hint there. But also <laughs> that meant the only second year subject I could do was a second year economics subject. So, uh, so yeah, so I, I just stuck with it. I, I always enjoyed it. But also also always found it quite frustrating. I mean, a lot of what we hear about the economy doesn't make a lot of sense. So often people are told uh, that we, you know, we have to do this, the markets say this, uh, and a lot of what's said about the economy never made much sense. So for me, studying economics helped me understand the public debate that, that was going on around me. Uh, and indeed, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Econobabble, which was all about decoding all of that economic jargon. I mean, most people aren't economists, most politicians aren't economists, but most politicians speak to the public using the language of economics. Mm. Well, if I didn't speak Japanese and you didn't speak Japanese, it would be pretty strange for me to explain something to you in Japanese. Mm. Uh, but a lot of voters, I'm, I'm sure, not just in Australia but in New Zealand and elsewhere, a lot of voters turn on and they hear people talking all this economic jargon all the time. Most of them probably just assume everyone else knows what it's about. Well, actually, in my experience, most people have got no idea what's being said. So, so studying economics helped me see through all that. So what books have you written? Uh, I've written a number of books. Uh, my most recent is called Curing Affluenza, How to Buy Less Stuff and Save the World, another, yeah. another grandiose title. <laughs> uh, I, I wrote a book called Econobabble. That's the one I was recently talking about. Um, uh, before that, I wrote a book on, on minority government, on, on how minor parties and independents play a role in Australian parliament and policy. Uh, and I've written, um, I've written a textbook on, on economics and the policy process. So, yeah, I love writing. I'm, I'm, I'm really lucky. I, I like writing and talking and, and my job pays me to do both. So the latest book is called Curing Effluenza. Um, can you maybe, for those who don't know much about what the term effluenza is, was, there was a book that was written about 2004, wasn't there? Yeah, I also, yeah, I was going back a ways. Uh, yeah. Back in 2004, I also wrote a book with Clive Hamilton, another Australian economist, called uh, Affluenza. Yeah, I read, uh, that. Two, I read that around that time. Yeah, but also there was a book in the UK and the US also called Affluenza. Yeah. Um, there's no copyright on book titles, and I think that was a good title. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so this latest book kind of feeds on that book from 15 years ago. But Affluenza, look, it's often defined as 
that strange desire to spend money you don't have buying things you don't need to impress people you don't know. Uh, and look, in my experience, we've all done it. Uh, I, I can think, especially as an adolescent, of a whole bunch of things that I bought that at the time I thought were really important. And, you know, maybe in hindsight, I might have just hosed some money up against the wall. So the, the purpose of, of, of curing affluenza isn't to make people feel bad about that, but to actually ask the question, why, why do we do this? Um, it's a new idea. Uh, in the 7,000 years of recorded history, the idea that a community would import enormous volumes of things that they don't use and then chuck them out and bury them in the ground and, and call that progress mm. and, and say that's the way to get rich, uh, that's a brand new idea. It didn't exist when I was a kid. didn't exist when I was studying economics really. Uh, but in the English-speaking world, it's, it's now often described as the dominant culture. So... Yeah, I wrote a book to help people understand how new this idea is, how weird it is, but also how if we wanted to change it, it probably wouldn't be too hard to change it at all. Well, so, so one of the things, now I'm not sure which affluenza book I read originally, well, hopefully it was yours, was yours, the one, <laughs> was yours the one that talked about the depression in the countries? Yeah. Yeah, um, so do you want but, to give a brief description of what that, like, because you're kind of in that book, you're kind of saying... The more a country is capitalistic, the more depression there is. is, is do you want to go into depth in that? Yeah, look, there's quite a lot of data in from around the world that suggests that uh, the more people believe that money is the path to happiness, uh, the less happy that that country is. Mm. So, and again, we've got data on this over time. And we've got data on this between countries. So uh, in a country like Australia these days, you know, people are surrounded with the idea that, that money buys happiness, that they need a pay rise, they need a bigger car, they need a bigger house. And look, if people really want a bigger house and a bigger car and they can afford one, good luck to them. But what happens, what the data tells us is that that, that sense that people are always missing out, that sense that everybody is doing better than you, uh, not surprisingly leads to uh, not just individual mental health problems but a, a kind of collective malaise and, and, and that helps to answer the question why in countries as rich as Australia, why doesn't everyone feel rich and happy? Like from a material point of view, Australia's never been richer than it is today. Mm. Australia's one of the richest countries in the world. We're living at the richest point in world history yet an enormous proportion of the Australian population feels stressed and broke. Now, is that because they don't have enough stuff or is that because they don't have as much stuff as someone they saw on television? And mm. in countries where that, uh, in countries where the idea that you need to have the most to be the happiest, in countries where that's not evident, uh, we, we find much higher rankings, much higher scores for, for psychological well-being and happiness. Oh, I remember, I remember in your book, in your, in your first book, where you were talking about the, um, I think it was Norway or something like that, and it was talking about how um, a man who works is almost frowned upon if he works too much. Society-wise, it's almost like as a, as a collective group, we say actually, if you're not spending time with your family, that's actually a bad thing. Whereas in like America, if you're a hard worker, that's almost like you're a good man even though you may be neglecting your family, that kind of the society norms and the pressures or what we say is right has a massive influence on what we'll chase. Absolutely. And in Curing Affluenza, I talk a lot about uh, how culture how culture changes and shapes our individual decisions. So when I was growing up, I'm, I'm in my late 40s, when I was growing up, Australia saw itself, described itself 
as the land of the sicky, the smoko and the long weekend. You know, the idea that, that workers would take time off work whenever they could. You know, there was, there was in Australia in the 70s, no one bragged about how hard they worked. Whereas Australia today, you know, when people ask you how you are, the, the polite answer is stressed. Mm. The polite answer is busy. The polite answer is, oh, I'm overwhelmed. You know, it's almost rude to suggest that, you know, you're doing well, <laughs> kicking back, you know, and that, that it, because even if you were, you wouldn't want to rub it in to all those other people that are working so hard. So, so yeah, we've Australian culture's changed radically in the last 30, 40 years uh, in a way where working long hours is now something to aspire to, it's something to be proud of, and indeed, you know, having, having a day off work or knocking off early uh, or taking a job that allows you to go home at 4 o'clock and play with your kids, if you might do that but you wouldn't brag about that in Australia today. And that's, that's a massive cultural shift. And, and the problem that I discuss in the book is that culture makes it harder for individuals to do what they want. Like when everyone else in your workplace wants to work till seven and you want to knock off at five, it's harder to knock off at five when everyone else is behaving that way. You can do it. You can still choose to do it, but you'll stand out more. It's a, it's a harder choice. Mm. So we need to discuss not just why do individuals work long hours, but I think what we need to do is open up a conversation about why is everyone else doing it because it's, it's hard to change when everyone else is doing the opposite. Historically looking back, when did you see these kind of different philosophies or ways of thinking start to shift in Australia? And is there some real pointers where you can actually say, oh, we see that shift right now? Oh, very much. Yeah, very much so. In Australia and, again, the English-speaking world, New Zealand, UK, US, Canada, similar but not identical things have taken place. And look, it all seemed to happen in the late 1980s. The work hours in particular started to really creep up. Um, And look, different people have argued about why. The wind seems pretty clear. But in Australia in the 50s, 60s and 70s, we had a very strong what we call a central wage fixing system. You know, our industrial relations, our workplace laws were were very centralised, and and in turn, the norms and the culture that we worked in was 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 quite consistent across individual across industries across states. We had a debate about what standard working hours would be, and since that time, there's been a lot of deregulation. There's been a lot of uh, individual workplaces and individual employees negotiating their own conditions. And there's no doubt there's benefits in that for a lot of people. Uh, there's no doubt that people that didn't want to work full-time can now find more part-time jobs in Australia than existed 30 years ago. But there's also no doubt there's far more people working 50 and 60 hours a week now than there were back then. So uh, I don't think well, in Australia we talk about workplace flexibility. Um I don't think you can say it's good or bad. Uh, it's a thing, and it has it has good things and bad things that come with it. But certainly, one of the bad things that's come with it, for a lot of people's point of view, is we now, yeah, have this long long hours culture, and and individuals sometimes, not always, but sometimes find that hard to to push back against. So, so, and you do talk about this in curing influenza, but um, how do we start to shift this stuff? You know, because it is. It is kind of grained now, isn't it? And, and we've got these systems and societies set up around it. You know, I know this is quite a broad question, but uh, on, on, a, on a society level, how do we start to kind of move to this? Yeah, that's a, 
Yeah, it's a great question. Look, before I answer this, that specific one, let, let me make a more general one. Culture changes all the time. Uh, when I, I remember going out for breakfast and paying someone to make me breakfast for the first time in 1994. Uh, I was 24 at the time. I still remember spending a lot of money to pay someone to scramble my eggs for me. Yeah. Um, in 1994, no one did that in Australia. Uh, today, everyone does that. Um, no one went out for coffee in Australia in 1994. Today, everyone does. Mm. No one had a mobile phone. No one had a smartphone. No one bought things online. So culture has changed radically in the last 25 years, and it will change radically again in the next 25 years. So to, to answer your specific question, you know, how do we change culture around the workplace? Um, look, you know, I could go all day on things you could do or couldn't do, but big picture, the first way to change a culture is to admit that you've got a problem. Or, or to talk about alternatives that people think are better. Mm-hmm. So, you know, once Australia, five, ten years ago, Australians started to talk about the fact that we were working some of the longest hours in the world. And simply starting that conversation, we've seen average hours worked fall a little bit. Like just simply describing ourselves, holding a mirror up and looking at ourselves and saying, we're not the land of the, the, the long weekend anymore. We're some of the longest working hours people in the world. Is that what we want to do? And since we started that conversation, Australian hours have decreased a bit. So for, for, you know, how do you change culture in a country? Yeah, it's hard. It takes time. And most importantly, in a democracy, most people have to want to change it. Mm. But starting conversations about why, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? Uh, what did we used to do? What are other people doing? What are the alternatives? Once you start those conversations, you can start to either encourage individual behaviour change or at the same time you can start talking about policy change. So France, for example, introduced a 35-hour week. Um, Sweden at the moment is heading for a six-hour day. Um, and, of course, in America they have no legal entitlement to annual holidays, none. Mm, yeah, crazy. The, <laughs> the average northern European has six, six weeks uh, that America has no legal right to for American workers have no legal right to to paid holidays. Their employers tend to offer them one or two weeks a year. So different countries make different choices. The issue for someone in New Zealand or someone in Australia is, you know, what what do we want? What do we want in our country? And we're not all going to agree, and we're not going to change the country overnight. But Australia started the twentieth century with zero public holidays zero public holidays and no paid holidays. And by 1975, we had four weeks annual leave. Mm -hmm. Um, It's similar in New Zealand, the timing's slightly different. So throughout the 20th century, Australians decided they wanted to buy a lot of holidays and they got a lot of holidays and Americans didn't. Mm -hmm. And Germans and Swedes and Norwegians got even more. Uh, Southeast Asian countries got even less. So different countries make different choices. Uh, so again, still answering your question, how do you change culture? Well, it's not easy, but it's not impossible, and it's, it starts with a conversation. What about on a personal level? For those, you know, if we go back to the definition of uh, influenza, um, I'm sure a few people listening to this today will probably acknowledge that they are chasing, you know, I love that saying, how do you know that you're climbing up the right ladder kind of thing. Yeah. And, and, and I'm sure lots of people listening to this today probably feel a little bit, identify with this idea of that 
shit, maybe I am chasing the the, mm. the the big car or the big house. Like I remember once I was talking to this top lawyer in Christchurch and she hated her career. And at the same time, she was saving, trying to buy a bigger house. And I was like, why would you do that if you hate your career? Because it's going to keep you in your career. But that was the only way she could reward herself. You know, and so this whole idea, maybe what was the definition of affluenza again? Uh, spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't know. Yeah, and I remember at the beginning of your last book, the, the first book that came out, and I loved how you did this, you kind of said, if I tell you how much I get paid to write this book, you could define if it's good or bad based on the money I put down here. And, and it really has nothing to do with the book, but yeah. it depends on how you perceive wealth. And, and I, I thought it was a really good way of kind of putting the perspective in place. So for those who are... Listening to this right now, and we've talked a little bit about the cultural changes, but on an individual level, have you seen people be able to shift, and and what have you been the ways that they have been able to shift? Uh, look, yes, yeah, so many ways. Look, the, the first thing to point out is that what I argue in the book is that uh, we actually need to love our stuff. Now, this is quite a strange thing for for, for some people to hear, especially in a book about affluenza. Mm. My point is that what we need, if you really want to buy a car, if that's going to make you happy, well, my advice is go buy that car. Mm. Make yourself really happy. But if that, if that, if you love that car or that bike or that lounge or those shoes, whatever you want to buy, buy it, love it. And by love it, I mean care for it, maintain it, repair it, look after it, and when you don't need it anymore, find it a new home. Mm. Because if you love something, if you really love something, then the last thing you do is chuck it out and replace it all the time. So in the book, I distinguish between materialism, which is the love of, sorry, materialism, which is the love of things. Mm. I think we need to love our things. And consumerism, which is the love of buying things. Mm. Now, where I think people get confused is a lot of people love the thrill of going to the shop and buying something new. Mm. Like that, the act of purchasing the new shoes or the act of purchasing the new car is the thing that floats their boat. Mm. Now, if it's the act of purchasing that makes you excited, if it's the act of purchasing that makes you happy, well, that's a kind of bottomless pit. You're never going to get out of that. Whereas if you actually love your bike, or you love your shoes, or you love your handbag, well, great. If you look after them, they'll last you for decades. Mm. So so in terms of kind of how individuals should try to cure affluenza, my advice is love your stuff. Figure out what it is you really want. Figure out the things that make you really happy. Mm. And if you can afford that big house or that big car or that handbag or that fantastic racing bike, if you can afford it, and it's going to make you happy, you'd be mad not to buy it. But after you've bought it, don't forget how much you wanted it. Mm. Don't forget that you said you loved it. Don't forget that you said you wanted it. And once you've got it, then hang on to it, look after it. And again, sometimes you won't need things anymore. Well, don't just leave them out the front of your house and let the rain ruin them and you know, mm. pretend that you were hoping someone had come and pick them up. Mm. You know, if, if, you, if you loved your dog and you had to move overseas and you couldn't take your dog with you, what would you do? Would, yeah. you, would you try and find it a new home? Yeah. Or, or would you just let it loose in a park somewhere and say, good luck? So, so yeah, I think for individuals to cure their own affluenza, they don't have to deny themselves all the things they want. 
On the contrary, I'm saying if you just single out the things you really want and you focus on them and you spend your money on them, great. But don't think chucking it out six months later and getting a new one is the path to happiness. Figure out the the material things you need. And also maybe another thing to think about is if you're buying it because it's meant to define me as a better person, that's probably not a healthier way to approach it either. No, indeed. So, and and that's of course one of the one of the traps of of retail consumerism that you know we're told that uh, we need a new five thousand dollar handbag or a new thousand dollar pair of shoes because look how high quality and fantastic and wonderful they are. But of course, no matter how high quality they are, next year they're out of date. Next mm. year they're out of fashion. Mm. So on the one hand, we're tricked into spending all this money on high quality things that will last forever. But while their material function might last for decades, their symbolic function, that is the, the act of display, the usefulness of showing how cool you are with them, well, that vanishes very fast. Now, if you're in the business of selling shoes or handbags or hats or cars, that's a very profitable thing to encourage Mm. because you're actually tricking people into spending a lot of money to buy the high-quality stuff, but no matter how much you spend on its high-quality material features, it's going to be out of date the minute you release the new model. Mm. And then all that visible display from your car or your handbag is visibly displaying its last year's car Mm. or last year's handbag. So I think that's the trap that we need to see through. That's the trap that causes affluenza, that when we think that the material things we buy send signals about who we are as a person, then, then that's a bottomless pit that we'll never get out of. Mm. But, if, but if the handbag or the shoe or the car really makes you happy, well, in a year's time or three years' time, if you really love it, it'll, it'll make you just as happy unless you bought it to impress other people, in which yeah. case it'll just prove that you're out of date. Mm. Uh, you do talk about in curing influenza, you talk a little bit about better use of money uh, and things like services and stuff like that. Do you want to go into a bit of detail around that? Yeah, look, similarly, so so again, what I say in the book is just think carefully about how you spend your money, uh, buy things you love. And a lot of people are concerned that this consumer lifestyle that we've created, this consumer culture, you know, spending all this money on stuff and then chucking it out, you know, exercise bikes we've never used, shoes we've never worn. Uh, this uses enormous amounts of natural resources, which which harm the natural environment as well. Well, there's a simple solution. If, if you're in the privileged position, if you're lucky enough that someone gives you enough money that you can waste it on stuff, and you're not sure what stuff to waste it on, this is a great problem to have. <laughs> it's a great um, problem to have. <laughs> it's a great problem to have. But in Australia, there are plenty of people suffering from it. I mean, that's why we invented retail therapy. Yeah. You know, to to cure boredom, yeah. uh, to cure your weekend's identity crisis. But what I say in the book is, look, you know, if you want to go waste your money on something, maybe waste it on services instead of on stuff. Mm. Because if you spend a thousand bucks on a personal trainer rather than a thousand bucks on an exercise bike, if you spend a thousand bucks on on maths tutoring or dance lessons or French lessons or learning to cook. Uh, rather than a thousand bucks on kitchen appliances you'll never use. Mm. Uh, indeed, if you spend a thousand bucks on a couple of great restaurant meals rather than twenty thousand dollars on a fancy oven that you never use, spending money on services 
creates more jobs and does far less harm to the natural environment than filling up our houses and then our landfill mm. with all that stuff we haven't used. Mm. So we often hear that it's good for the economy to waste money on stuff. Mm. Well, the point I make in the book is spending money on services, uh, well, probably is even better for the economy than spending money on, on imported stuff. Mm. You, you, you do, you, one thing you really kind of um, push in the book is this idea of a country measuring itself based on the economy, you know, and it's, we always hear, as you said earlier on in the conversation, you know, the economy, the economy, the economy. And one of the things that countries need to think about is what's a broader spectrum to actually measure themselves on. Absolutely. I mean, you know, imagine if a, imagine if a family said, uh, look, our family's doing really well. Uh, yep, one of my kids has just dropped out of school. The other kid's got a uh, terrible illness that, uh, you know, that we didn't spend any money to prevent. Uh, but mum and dad both got a pay rise last year. So, you know, and oh, by the way, you know, we're heading for divorce. But, you know, <laughs> when, that's right. You know, let's, let's look at our household income. It's up 10% on last year's household income. So we must be better off. Mm. Well, most people instantly see how ridiculous that would be. But when we talk about national income, when you hear politicians bragging and saying, but, you know, nationwide, New Zealand's got 3% uh, more income than it had last year. The economy's grown by 3%. We're 3% better off. Uh, well, as an economist, I'd say maybe, you know, maybe you're better off. You know, tell me a tell me a better story. Tell me a longer story. Mm. You know, has has life expectancy gone up or down? Are, are kids enjoying school more or less? Uh, are the waiting lists for elective surgery in hospital long or short? Are you stuck in traffic for hours or are you enjoying world class public transport? Mm. You know, it's mm. great to hear that you got a three percent pay rise. But if you're spending that three percent pay rise on uh, on on antidepressants to to get you through the day, or you're spending that three percent pay rise on on bigger cars so you can be more comfortable in traffic jam, well, <laughs> you know, as as a as a citizen and as an economist, I'd say that's a pretty strange thing to worry about. So I think it's important that we measure things like GDP. It's data. It's interesting for for people that are interested in it. But when non-economist politicians try to assure non-economist voters that everything's going all right because GDP went up, uh, as an economist, I'd say that's ridiculous. Well, I think New Zealand's a really good example of that. We've had a booming economy for the last probably 10 years, or since GFC, really. And... Um um, our poverty has been gone through the roof and child yeah. poverty is actually quite disgraceful in New Zealand and uh, it's a real good example of measuring one thing while neglecting many other areas. That's right. And imagine a household again where you said, oh, how are the kids going? You said, oh, well, one's going great. I've, I've paid for them to go to university and I've just bought them another, an, a, a house because, you know, housing's expensive these days. I wanted to give them a good start in life. And you say, well, what about the other kid? You say, oh, you know, I, you know, I said they're on their own. They can look after themselves and they, mm. they didn't go to uni and they're homeless at the moment. But, hey, on average, my kids are doing pretty well. Mm. You know, how we divide up, how we literally, how, how we divide up that national income uh, is, is as important as what happened to that national income if you want to understand whether a nation's going well or not. So if, if you know, Gina Reinhart's the richest woman in Australia, if, if she doubled her wealth, 
tomorrow, she got an extra $20 billion. Um, uh, and, and the poorest people lost $10 billion, then GDP would say we're $10 billion up. Mm. You know, the richest person's $20 billion better off, poorest people are $10 billion worse off. The, 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 the net effect is we're $10 billion better off. But mm. not many people would look at that and say, oh, that's a meaningful way to describe how a country's going. And again, that's that's what GDP does. It it doesn't talk about who's benefiting. It doesn't say who got the pay rises. It doesn't say what the money's being spent on. It just says how much money was there and what how much got spent. How much do you feel you're you're push, pushing shit uphill, or do you actually feel do you have much hope? You know, because I, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like because obviously your message is a really important message. Um, but you are, you know, look at look at the Instagram world, the, the Facebook world. You know, it is promoting this kind of affluenza lifestyle. Um, what's what's your perspective moving forward around this stuff? Yeah, look, I, I guess uh, I, I'm optimistic about change because the one thing that history tells me is that nothing ever stays the same. Again, there was no cafe culture in Australia 40 years ago. There was no retail culture in Australia 40 years ago. So the thing that kind of keeps me hardworking and focused, I suppose, is I know that in 40 years' time, the world will look entirely different than it looks now. The one thing the world won't look like in 2057 is what it looks like today. So so much of our public debate starts from you'll never change anything when, of course, the one thing that we can be certain of is there's going to be enormous change. Now, will will the world change in ways that I think would make more people happier? I don't know. Uh, But the one thing I know for sure is it won't stay the same as it is. Mm. So I think that... Uh, there's lots of reasons to think that the version of consumer capitalism we're experiencing now isn't isn't going to last for too much longer. Uh, there's a lot of reasons to think that. The main one is it just doesn't seem to make people very happy. Mm. Like It's made some people very rich. It's made the people that sell all this stuff we don't need enormous amounts of money. But as you said at the beginning, it doesn't really make people very rich, uh, very happy. So if we look around the world, there's seven and a half billion people in the world, maybe maybe one billion, maybe one and a half billion live like we do. Six billion don't. Uh, and they're going to make their own choices in the coming years and decades. And, and I don't think that as, as a billion people in China and a billion people in India uh, get the kind of incomes in the coming decades that we take for granted, I don't think they're going to copy us. Uh, I think they'll copy some of the things we do, but I think they'll look at a bunch of the things we do and think they're absurd. Mm. So, you know, for example, you've already got uh, countries like China saying, you know, we're going to have all electric cars soon. Mm. Now, that's going to change their cities in ways that will take us decades to catch up to. Yeah. Uh, they're going to quickly move to self-driving cars uh, that are like taxis that just show up when they want them. Mm. This isn't science fiction. This is mm. this is happening right now. So every Australian, every New Zealander thought they needed to buy a car. We spend tens of thousands of dollars on these things that get used literally 5% of the time. Mm. 95% of the time my car is parked somewhere. Well, countries like China and India are going to have uh, self-driving cars that never park. Mm. They're never going to stop moving. <laughs> They're just going to be shuttling between people that need a lift, you know, permanently. 
again, that's not science fiction. That's that's inevitable. And in turn, their cities, their economies aren't going to look like ours. So, so yeah, we struggle. We say, oh, we'll never stop doing these things we didn't used to do. Uh, but the other six billion people in Africa and Asia, uh, they're looking at the options that we've chosen, and a lot of them don't make a lot of sense. And I don't think they're going to copy them. Um, just on a personal level, where, where's your struggle within this? <laughs> oh, look, my struggle is, is is everyone's struggle. You know, how, what are, what's the right way to live your life? What's the what, what are the most important things to spend your time on? What are the most important things to spend your money on? Uh, how do you raise your kids? I mean, I hate buying stuff. Uh, that doesn't I do, but get... I'm a tight ass, so you're, you're, well, you're always rude for me. <laughs> well, me too. But guess what? I've got kids that yeah. that, that want to fit in, and, yeah. and and they want their stuff, and, and I I don't want to say to them, "Oh, sorry, kids, your dad's a freak." Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, you're 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 never going to have you know the, the 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 toys that all your friends play with. You know, yeah. that's just silly. Uh, and, and to be clear, I don't impose that on them, you know, but I, I say, do you really want that? And they say, yes. I say, are you sure? And they say, yes. I say, do you reckon in six months' time when I ask you how often you've played with it, you'll say, I played a lot with it? And I say, oh, a lot, a lot. And I say, oh, you know I'm going to ask you. You know I'm going to ask you. So, you know, my point is, so, yeah, that's that's a struggle for me. Uh, again, I, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to ruin their childhood. I had a great childhood. I had plenty of toys. Uh, but I do want my kids to grow up questioning these things. But I mean genuinely questioning because they're going to have to struggle with these things themselves. So I think like the, the idea behind the book, the idea behind curing affluenza isn't to say here's a list of things it's all right to spend money on. Here's a list of good things for you to do. And if you do these things, you'll be happy. The premise of the book is these, this, the, everyone's going to make their own decisions on this, but if we think hard about why we make them, if we think hard about do I really need this thing or is it just I feel like going shopping right now, you know, if we can actually break down these decisions and, and pay a bit more attention to them, then I think we'll get better at making them and, and not in a way that shuts us off from the world, not in the way that, that yeah, it turns us all into, you know, tight asses that can't have fun like me. Uh, I, I mean people I'm sure you're, just... I'm sure you're very fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'm not fun in a shopping centre. No, I yeah, just, I you know, it does my head in. Yeah. So, but again, I'm not telling people not to go there. I'm telling people to think hard about why they went there. Mm. And I'm saying, you know, if you've heard that going to the shops and wasting money is good for the economy, well, you've been misled. Mm. You know, if you went and spent that money in a cafe or getting a massage, you'd help the economy just as much. And you might even be happier, you know, paying for a massage rather than buying a massage chair. Mm. You know, the idea that stuff will make us happy uh, it, it doesn't have much evidence to back it up. Well, and one one other thing you promote in this book is this whole idea of buying your time back. Um, you know that if you're, if you're always chasing more stuff, you always need more money. But if you can let go of that and kind of find a better happy medium around that, you could work less, which could be deeper for relationships, deeper for self development, deeper for life experiences, and all those types of things as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and again, in Australia, culturally, collectively, that's what we did in the 20th century. Mm. Instead of just getting pay rises, we got holiday rises. Mm. After World War I, one-week paid holiday became the norm. After mm. World War Two, two weeks paid holiday became the norm. This, this didn't just happen. Mm. You know, this was a community saying, hey, as we get richer, wouldn't it be nice to have more time? 
But I do think that the kind of individualism that we've kind of uh, imposed since the 80s where we've said to individuals, you go negotiate with your boss, you know, you go, you know, you go sort it out, it's kind of easier for you and your boss just to negotiate about pay. Mm. It's actually harder to say, look, you know, rather than a 4% pay rise, can I have an extra two weeks paid holidays? And that's you know that's the price, by the way, for anyone listening. If if you want your holidays to go from four weeks a year to six weeks a year, well, next time someone offers you a four percent pay rise, just say no. A two percent pay rise is broadly equivalent to a one week's extra paid holiday. Mm. So, but no one tells people this. Mm. So, so everyone, it's easy to go and tell everyone you just negotiated a four a four percent pay rise, but. Maybe you should have asked for a holiday rise or maybe you should have asked for a nine-day fortnight or maybe you should have asked to knock off at three, mm. you know. But this is kind of more complicated. It's harder for you manage to manage this stuff. It's harder for individuals to figure it all out. It's kind of just easy to get a pay rise and then go buy the massage chair. Yeah, yeah. Um, just any last thoughts before we kind of wrap things up? Oh, look, you know, big picture, I, I just think these are wonderful problems to have. Yeah. You know, there are, there are really poor people in Australia. There are really poor people in New Zealand. There are really poor people around the world who don't suffer from affluenza at all. Yeah. You know, they, they suffer from an income that's not large enough to meet <laughs> their food, clothing and shelter needs. Yeah. But, but for the vast majority of people in a rich country, that's not the case. And what a great problem to have, you know, food, clothing and shelter is all sorted out. You're not going to starve to death. You feel pretty safe. What are you going to do with your life? Not just with your job, but with the money you earn. How are you going to shape your life, your community, the world you live in? I think people should feel incredibly empowered to to think hard about those choices, uh, but also to talk to other people about those choices because it's so easy to just go along with what everyone else is doing. Uh, and sure, there are individuals out there that get off on bucking the system. But for those that maybe would like to but aren't 100% confident, I'd say talk to your friends, talk to your family, talk to your colleagues and, and see how other people are feeling because I think people would be surprised how many other people question the idea that working long hours is a great way to be happy mm. or that spending a lot of money on stuff is, is a great way to get happy. Mm. So, you know, talk about it, think about it, and, and, and understand what a, what a privilege it is, how lucky people are when, when they've got problems like this to solve. And when you become that person who is a little bit brave, and um, it's funny actually, I was once working in America and I was doing this job where everyone was working unbelievable hours and, uh, and and I, we were kind of being conned, and so after a couple of weeks, I realised we were being conned, <laughs> and so and so I thought, oh, I'm not being conned. I'm going to do the forty hours I was meant to do, and I'm going to leave, and I'm going to go for a run at lunchtime and stuff like that. But mainly because I was being a stubborn prick. But it was amazing how much my my kind of putting boundaries around work influenced my workplace. And I, yep. I and I wasn't doing because I was brave, but it was purely just because I felt a bit upset about the whole situation. But when you do be that person who does break the mould, um. People do look, and it does make them think. Well, why can't I have this? You know, absolutely. Like, you know, so yeah, there there is influence that comes with that, isn't there? Absolutely, <laughs> and and indeed, that's that's how culture gets changed by individuals behaving differently. All, all culture is is the vague sense of what's normal. Mm. You know, we all kind of recognise culture, 
and Australians and New Zealanders kind of laugh at the tiny differences between the two because yeah. when you're familiar with a culture, small things stick out. Yeah. Well, it's the same in a workplace. One one person saying, you know what, I am going to go home at five o'clock makes it a lot easier for everyone else. But mm. but even if you if you don't feel you can be that one person, at least be the person who every now and then talks to their colleagues and say, well, maybe we should both do it. You know, how about this? We'll both go to the pub at five o'clock. Sounds like a great way to start changing the world to me. Yeah. Hey, Richard, I, I, um, I love your work. I think it's really important work. Um, if people want to follow you, I know you're on Twitter. Is there, do you have a website or...? Uh, look, the Australia Institute has a website, uh, but yeah, just Richard Dennis on Twitter, R-D-N-S underscore T-A-I. Not the coolest Twitter handle in the world, but I'm sure if they search for Richard Dennis, they'll find me. I'll put, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You're doing cool work. That's the main thing, mate. I really appreciate Great. your time today, and uh, and I'm sure the listeners have loved it as well. So thank you for your time. Great. Thanks, and thanks for helping people think about these things. It's the only way to change culture. Definitely, for sure. Right, Attempts so there is my interview with Richard Dennis. Hopefully you enjoyed that. I think there's a lot to take away from his work. This whole idea of affluenza, and um, I'm sure as you were listening to it, we can all get caught up in seeing how we do this to ourselves. And I just love what he promotes. I just think it's it's an important way to be looking at the world, and it's something that we um, want to be working on. It's particularly if you really identify with what he talked about in here and, and the ways that is working against you and if you can work on moving forward from these things and, and seeing your way in a much healthier way and direct your energy for yourself and your world in a much healthier way that promotes better things then it's going to be a pretty powerful thing it's um it's really important stuff so i'll put the link to his books effluenza and curing effluenza in the show notes to this, just go to bevanjamesos.com and I'll put the links in there. And uh, yeah, check them out. I, I, both of them are really, you know, important reads. Um, if you want to become a patron of the show, go to bevanjamesos.com. You support me in getting good work out there. And just, there's a Patreon link on there. It's all pretty clear once you go there. Um, other than that, that's pretty much today's show done and dusted. If you want to email, you can me email me at bevanjames at gmail.com. I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. It's uh, 2018. It's kicking off nice and strong. And I look forward to kind of making great content for you guys in this year. You have a great week, and I'll see you in a couple of weeks' time. See you, bye.